that. And um, want to make sure that you're praying for her. She's she's working right now to, uh, in fundraising, um, and then is is hoping to be going out there later this in the at the beginning of the fall. So, a couple things with that. Uh, I want to encourage you to grab a prayer card. If you haven't already, go ahead and put your information on that uh, email sign-up sheet that she's got there, so that you can stay up to date on what's happening. And then also next week. Uh, we want to, we, uh, it was a few weeks ago, Mary got to kind of share with us a little bit more about what she's actually anticipating doing, and we're very excited about that. Uh, to, as, a, as a church, we want to support her in that, so next week we are going to have a love offering for her uh, to help with that. Uh, hopefully, I know she's trying to do individual partnerships as well, but that's one thing we want to do as a church. So uh, come prepared next week for that. Um, also, uh, you're going to need a Bible. So if you don't have one with you this morning, you can grab one off the rolling rack, those red pew Bibles there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want you to keep that and use it. Uh, and hopefully bring it back with you and uh, so you can continue to study it. Um, and then it looks like there's still some uh, sermon notes out there. So if you would like to have some sermon notes to follow along, those are very helpful for our connection groups which are going to be meeting this week. Uh, so this week is a connection group week, so we will have our meeting. Um, can it, you guys, Caribous are back at it, right? Back over COVID, so you're good to go. All right, and I think the Canterbury's are also got theirs going on. So uh, connection groups, the reason we do connection groups is because we only have a limited amount of time together on a Sunday morning, so we want to make sure we are uh, giving ourselves as many opportunities to be together. So if you are not in a connection group and you'd like to be, can talk to me after the service and we'll try to get you plugged into one that means that men's and women's groups are off the women though you guys are going to be meeting july 15th so uh, the men we meet every other thursday so um and then finally just a quick reminder uh we are a church that believes in the power of prayer so we Every Sunday at 9.30, we're here to meet together, pray with one another, and hear a short devotional from God's Word. So if you have a prayer request, we also send that out uh, every Tuesday. If you have a prayer request or if you have an update to a prayer request, then get in touch with me to let me know to put that on there. Uh, we usually send that out every Tuesday, so send that to pastor at ourgbc.com. You can also call the church office or you can talk to me after the service. Just again, if you do that, just write your details down so I can make sure I have all that. Uh, so I can communicate that well to the body. So, um, oh, and then one last final uh, relevant piece of information. We will be having Gospel Project, so um, we will dismiss them, the kids, at uh, after offering. So um, with that, that's all the announcements that I have for today. So let's just begin with the time of silence as we prepare to worship our great God and King. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, we just thank and praise you uh, for the gift of another day of life. Lord, you have blessed us for we know that
every little thing that we have comes from you, and we are so grateful for that. We know that you have joy in and are glorified by our worship, and we thank you for the blessing of that opportunity that we have here again this morning, come together with fellow believers to glorify you. We pray for your guidance in every little thing that we do that we might do this accurately and in a manner that is pleasing to you. And we just pray that you would, um, that you would be glorified in our worship. And we just thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's uh, first scripture reading is found in Psalm 149. Out of reverence for the Lord, would you please stand with me? Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Amen. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to praise our great God and King. So if you'll remain standing as we sing our first song this morning of oh, 4,000 Tongues. second song this morning and can it be
present yourself to us as a shepherd and you speak of us as sheep and surely Lord we are like sheep like sheep we don't know where we should go and how we should get there like sheep we tend to wander and go our own way. 
And like sheep, when we do that, we tend to find ourselves in difficulty. But you are our shepherd, O God. And like a shepherd, you lead us in the right path. We could not determine the right path for ourselves. You lead us in the right path for your name's sake. And as we're following you and walking on that path, we find that very often you lead us into pastures that are green and plentiful, where there is cool water and we find refreshment for our souls because you are a good shepherd. Sometimes as we follow you, O oh God, it pleases you for the path to go through places of darkness. And we are so much like sheep when we get in the darkness. We are fearful. We, we feel threatened. And we don't know what to do and how to deal with the dark places. But you are our shepherd. And you are leading us along the right path. And go, though it goes through a valley of darkness, we know you are with us. You comfort us. You defend us. And like sheep who are dependent upon you, we are able to get through that dark valley safely and with peace. We don't live in a world that's friendly to you, Lord. You know that. You even told us to expect it. In the world, you said we could expect to have trouble. What you reminded us that you have overcome the world and you are our shepherd. And in the presence of the enemy that would take us down and destroy us and destroy your work, in the presence of your enemy and ours, you prepare a table of abundance and provide for us. And you identify us as your own in the presence of our enemies. And so we know that you have identified with us in such a way that to attack us is to attack you. And you are our shepherd. And you are with us. Oh, Heavenly Father.
Thank you for being our shepherd. Thank you that all the days of our life, goodness and mercy follows us. And thank you that when we come to the end of this life, we know that we will live in your house forever. We know that you have been preparing a place for us. And because you are preparing that place for us, you're coming to receive us. We know, Father, we have a place to go. And it is with you. And so we are thankful. We are thankful, Father, that we are your sheep, helpless, defenseless, in need every day. And yet, as our shepherd, you uphold us, you provide for us, you guide us, and the end, you will take us to be with you. And for this assurance, we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our God moved upon holy men of God to write down his words. And we want to read some of them this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4. I invite you to stand with me in respect for God's word as we hear what he has to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, commencing at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the, Lord's, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, the Lord is. There is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, 
We are therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced these disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of truth, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen.
And our third song this morning we want to sing in hopeful anticipation of those promises that we've just read about. So if you'll remain standing as we sing together, see the destined day arise. Thank you, please be seated. 
As we come now to our time, as we worship through giving, and also as we prepare to receive God's word, let's go to him and ask his blessing on our time. Our great God in heaven, it is such a wonderful thing to be gathered together with your people. Lord, as I look out on all the faces of those who are here this morning, I see the story of your grace being told in each and every individual life, a beautiful mosaic of the grace that you have poured out, taking that which, apart from you, it would be unworthy, and making it worthy through the blood of King Jesus. Lord, we are here this morning as a people who have been redeemed through the sacrifice of Christ. And it's in his life that we rejoice. Lord, thank you for working in our hearts to open our eyes to that. And also, Father, we come to you and ask that you would continue to do that, that you would exalt the name of Christ by bringing many more to come and to know him as their Savior. Lord, we thank you that you have worked through what men have counted as weakness and foolishness, even in things that are not, to show your power and your wisdom and your glory in the new creation. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts today to receive your word, to think about our lives in a way that is missional, in a way that, is, that sets our own, our own preferences aside in favor of what you've called us to do, to live as a people of the cross, to join Christ on the road to the cross as he's called his disciples and to live with all boldness because our life is in him and nothing can take that away. Lord, give us hearts of joy to do this, we pray. And make us a people who are bold in Christ, who are so full of a knowledge of you and of the glory and of a love for you that we, are not, we do not despair by the things that we see going on in our world, but we remain bold and steadfast and encouraged, and encouraging. Lord, as we pray for ourselves, we also, our hearts are with those who you have sent out from us to take the good news of the gospel into all sorts of places throughout the world. And this morning, Father, we want to lift up to you our brother and sister Phil and Lori Hunt. Lord, we thank you so much for their years of ministry in Zambia, for the way you have raised up churches there uh, in their city and across, um, across their nation. And Lord, we thank you for the way that you are using the university uh, to equip uh, faithful men and women to go out and to be heralds of the truth. Lord, we pray for those who are being trained for pastoral ministry that you would give them uh, just a real vision of the glory of Christ that compels them to, to, to preach your word and to preach it faithfully. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to open up new doors and new avenues uh, for the gospel to go out into places that have not heard it yet. Lord, this week as we've heard about this situation involving the, the property of the university itself and, and how ugly that, position, that, has, that situation has become, we just want to pray that you would encourage Phil and the rest of the faculty. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will protect the university from infringement. I pray that you will uh, work to equip Phil to be gracious and to represent the, uh, Christ well, even as he battles for the needs of the, of the university itself. And I pray, Father, that you would work in the heart of those who are working against the university, that you will convict them and that you will bring peace to this situation in a way that only you can. And Lord, as you do so, we pray that the gospel uh, would continue to shine brightly there 
and it would spread across the whole continent of Africa as a result. <clears throat> Lord, as we pray for the church abroad, we also want to pray for the church here locally. And Lord, this morning, we want to pray for, uh, for Plymouth Alliance Church and for their pastor, Pete Lowellstone. Lord, we thank you for their witness and for the way that you have uh, established them and that you are working through them. We pray, Lord, that you will keep Pastor Lillestolen uh, faithful to the truth of, the, of your word and that as a result that the church would grow and that it would flourish and that, it would, that its members would bear faithful witness in their lives as they go out into the world. Father, we pray that you would bind them together to function as one body in all unity and love and in the truth. Lord, as you also call us to pray for those who are in authority over us, and this morning, Father, we want to pray for our local, our local council members and for those who work um, to represent us in the city and in the county. Lord, we just pray that you would equip them, that they would not press forward their own agendas, but would faithfully represent the needs of our community. Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts to bring them into submission to you, that they would love you, and that they would execute their duties in the fear of you. Lord, we pray that um, as, we, as we pray for our local authorities, that uh, you would even enliven our own hearts to, to serve well as citizens here, even as we are citizens of a greater kingdom that is not of this world. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in this. And we thank you for having placed us here at this time and place for this purpose. Finally, Lord, as we come before you to worship you through giving, and we want to pray that our hearts would be in a right place even as we give, that we would give joyfully, knowing that you delight in a cheerful giver, but also, Father, we would, I pray that this time would be a time of worship, that it wouldn't just be, we wouldn't see it as an intermission, but we would see it as an opportunity to really uh, contemplate how richly you have poured out your mercy on us. And we pray, Father, that you would take what is given and use it effectively for your kingdom and the glory of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts 16. You can find that on page 925 if you are using one of the Red Pew Bibles. This morning, we're going to be, we're going to be covering more ground than I expected uh, us to do. We're going to actually be reading uh, verses 16 through 40. It just all flows together. And while I had intended to... This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. There's some pretty amazing things that happen here. And I intended to split it up accordingly, but there is just a theme here that we need to chase out together. So I'm excited to get into that 
with you. And that, what I want to show you this morning from this passage is that God is a liberator. He is a redeemer who sets the captive free. That is not all that God is, but it, that is something that he has revealed to us about himself in his word. In Luke 4, we're told that Jesus, during his ministry, returned to the city of Nazareth where he had grown up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. And this time, the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him, and he read from it aloud for all to hear, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As, as Jesus finished this up, he rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and said to those who were gathered there in the synagogue, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The people of Nazareth who heard Jesus say those things were obviously astonished by what they had seen and heard. Luke says they marveled at Jesus' gracious words. In fact, they struggled to comprehend what he was saying to them. They, they all knew Jesus. He was their neighbor. They knew his family. They knew his parents. And in the end, that actually became an impassable barrier to their belief because they just couldn't comprehend or accept that Jesus, the son of Joseph, could be the promised Messiah. Although the people of Nazareth failed to honor Jesus as they should have, that did not change the truthfulness of what Jesus said that day. His interpretation of Isaiah 61 gives us a glimpse into the heart of God and the purpose for why Jesus came. He came to set us free from our enslavement to sin and death. He came to set us free to live in a right relationship with God, not just to restore us to God, but to elevate us to a new and better relationship with him. He came to open the eyes of the blind, to upend the power of the devil, to restore what had been lost, to proclaim God's favor and salvation, to set within his people a heart that loves and longs to obey God and to equip us with the Holy Spirit to do just that. So we hear Paul echoing these very words in his letter to the Galatian churches, for freedom Christ has set us free. And then to the Corinthian church, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In our passage this morning, we get to see God's purpose of liberty put into action. Last week, we saw how God sovereignly directed Paul, Silas, and those who were with them to the city of Philippi, where they met a woman named Lydia who believed the gospel and in turn received them into her home. In our passage today, Luke tells us more about how that ministry in Philippi continued. And to be honest, it is a pretty wild ride, which is part of what makes this passage so near and dear to my heart. I, I enjoy this. This is an adventure story. Uh, we get to watch as God uses the testimony of Paul and Silas to bring the gospel and the freedom of Christ to two very unlikely places in a rather unexpected way. And it has major implications for how we look at our own lives and God's purpose for us. 
So let's begin by reading our passage. If you will, one more time, please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16 and reading through verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. Luke says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately... All the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked that they leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. 
One of the fundamental convictions that we hold as believers is that the Bible is God's word. That's the reason we spend so much time studying it, reading it, exploring it, listening to it as it's preached to us, submitting our, and submitting ourselves to it. The Bible is not a mere book of rules or a mere history or just a collection of wise sayings. It is God's self-revelation which records his words to us and tells us about his work for us. For this reason, biblical scholars describe the scriptures as a word act revelation. God has shown himself and he continues to show himself through his work and his word in the, in the world. But he has also, and this is why scripture is so important, he has spoken to us to interpret and explain those actions as well. That is to say that God is his own interpreter. He does not leave us to draw our own conclusions about him from what he has done, but rather he interprets his own redemptive acts for us. As Gerhardus Voss puts it, without the acts, without God's acts, the words would be empty. Without his words, the acts would be blind. So there's a relationship between what God does and what he says in his word that helps us to understand him better. The Bible tells us the story of God's work of redemption, the way that he has resolved to triumph over sin and death and the devil to the glory of Jesus Christ. If we look at the Old Testament, we see God preparing the way for the work of Jesus. In the gospel, we see God fulfilling that word. And then in the rest of the New Testament, we see the significance of the work of Jesus being unpacked and interpreted in the fulfillment of God's purposes. So if you've ever heard me say something like the story of redemption, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the grand story that is told by the Bible from beginning to end about the goodness of God as he has worked to redeem his people from their sin through his son, Jesus Christ. There's, as you read the Bible, this is not just intermittent pieces of information. There is, they are linked together. There's an order to this work, and there's a purpose to this, inspired, this divinely inspired word, which ultimately convinces me of its trustworthiness. Now, what does that have to do with our passage? Well, in Acts 16, we see God's redemptive work being played out in the lives of a demon-possessed girl, a Philippian jailer and his family, and then also in the lives of Paul and Silas themselves. We get a better grip here on what it means that Jesus has come to set us free. And we get a very vivid picture of the calling that God has placed on the lives of believers. So this passage, if you will, is like a microcosm of the gospel, where we see God's word of freedom being put into a work of freedom. So it brings us to consider our main idea this morning, which is this, that in joining himself with us, Christ has set us free from our bondage to sin and death, and he calls us to join him in this work as messengers of this good news. So in our, in our time this morning, I want to unpack three points for you. First, I want to show you that God is a God who frees the oppressed. God frees the oppressed. Second, we see that Christ has freed us by joining us in our affliction. And third, I want to show you that Christ calls us as his people to join him in that work. So let's begin by looking at God's heart to free the oppressed. At the time when Silas, 
and Paul and Timothy and Luke came to the city of Philippi, it was a place that was lost in darkness. There were very few in this city who feared the Lord. Most of the city was caught up in just paganism. So let's, let's just say that even though God had worked in a tremendous way to save the lady, Lydia, and her household, this little group of missionaries had their work cut out for them in the city of Philippi. In this time that followed after first meeting Lydia, we see they continued using that place of prayer where they'd first met her. And I'm sure as they did, they were seeking all opportunities they could to share the gospel with others in the city. But they were going there. And we're told, Luke, Luke tells us, that one day while they were headed to that place, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. So basically what would happen is for a fee, you could come to this girl and she would tell you your fortune, whether that was true or false. And apparently she had enough pull. People were pretty taken with her abilities. Because Luke says that her owners made a lot of money off of her. She brought them big business. While she suffered under the oppression of this evil spirit, they were lining their pockets, even at her expense. This is a despicable situation. Now, how exactly she came across their group, Luke doesn't say. But he does say that once she did, she began to make quite a scene of things. She started following them around and crying out to people, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what's strange about all this is that she wasn't wrong. They were, in fact, servants of God. They had come to Philippi to preach the gospel, the way of salvation. All of this was true. But we shouldn't get the idea that she or this evil spirit that was upon her was trying to convince people to believe the gospel. While it might sound like the gospel was getting free advertising from her, we all know that the truth can be wielded in wrong ways to turn people off to it. Imagine Paul, Silas, Timothy, even Luke trying to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, all the while this girl is falling into the ground screaming at people. That's, that's going to drive people away. This would have been a distraction, and it was coming from an enemy source. The situation is not unlike what we see in Jesus' own ministry. As he would cast out demons, he would not allow them to speak, even though they would say, what have you to do with us, son of God? So apparently all this was, it was creating quite the distraction, and it was also incredibly annoying. She did this for days until finally Paul, Luke tells us, greatly annoyed, turned and spoke to the Spirit and commanded it in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And that very hour, Luke says, it did. Now, as I was studying, as I was looking at this, I was, I've always wondered why it took Paul so long to do this. Why, why didn't he just cast this demon out from the get-go? This is really the first time that Luke has told us about Paul confronting an evil spirit. It's not going to be the last. But it seems, and it, as we read this, it seems like he finally confronted the situation out of his own frustration more than anything. Maybe he waited. Maybe he was trying to hope that the, the situation would resolve itself. But clearly it was not happening. Maybe he anticipated this was going to cause problems. Maybe that's why he was not saying anything yet. One way or another... It became a situation that was untenable. And finally, Paul just speaks out of his frustration and commands this demon to come out. Now, 
whatever reason Paul had for waiting, that should not distract us from the power and really the, what, the amazingness of what has happened here. The spiritual forces of darkness had tried to put a roadblock to the gospel here at the expense of this poor girl. But in the end, we see it actually occasioned a vibrant display of the power and the authority of Jesus. Notice Paul didn't command the Spirit to go do anything out of his own authority. Rather, he commands the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. People heard this. The people who witnessed him say this and who heard about it later on, they got to see something of the glory and the power of the Jesus that Paul and Silas had come to proclaim to them. The spiritual forces that had, to this point, kept them captive in fear and deception were no match for the authority of the one true God. The people in Philippi were getting to witness the power of the name of Jesus. They were seeing right before their eyes God's power to save and his heart to free the oppressed. This, this is one of the best things that had ever happened to this city. This, this city was known for many things. It was known throughout the empire. But this was one of the greatest things that had happened there. God had sent his messengers to this city with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only that, but they got to witness firsthand the power of Christ as this girl was set free from the oppression of an unclean spirit. This is one of those word-act moments where we see God's heart to see the captive set free, all to the glory of King Jesus. It's a moment that ought to make us stop and think about the way he has shown that same heart to each and one of us. (coughs) We don't like to dwell on things that that make us uncomfortable, that make us, that we're not completely, we don't understand completely. The reality is that there is a spiritual realm at work in this world in ways that we are not even aware of. Ephesians 2 explains to us that since the fall, mankind has come under a certain kind of of enslavement to sin and death that we are not able to free ourselves from in our own efforts. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we may see the enslavement, that sort of enslavement, a little more visibly in this girl at Philippi, but the reality is that the influence of darkness had a hold on every one of us before Christ. Apart from God's intervention, we would still all be in that state. And that's why this moment in Philippi is so amazing. It's, it's personal. It's personal because just as God delighted in showing mercy to this little girl by freeing her from this oppressive spirit, He has also shown mercy to us by setting us free through the work of his son. As Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. So what we're looking at here in Philippi is nothing less than a brilliant display of God's love 
playing itself out in setting the oppressed free. He is our liberator. And having shown you that, I want to consider now the way, the manner in which God has accomplished that work. And it's rather surprising. You see, God has set us free from that power by sending Christ to join us in our affliction. You would have thought that people, when they saw this happen, would have been amazed and happy to see this poor girl freed from an evil spirit. But that is clearly not the case. In verse 19, Luke says that when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the main square before the rulers. Once they had them there, they accused them of bringing chaos to the city. Specifically, Luke says that they tell the magistrates, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They are troublemakers. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Well, the truth is that Paul and Silas had done nothing of the sort here. The people who own this girl are upset because they've lost their investment. And in their anger, they are coming against Paul and Silas. Now, at this time, Romans were not real fond of Jews. Uh, Jews rejected all gods besides the Lord. And so while they tolerated them, it was always an uneasy relationship. You can see that uh, play out in the way that the owners play on this bias here. They charge Paul and Silas with being Jews. And not only that, they charge them with disturbing the peace, trying to advocate for things that are anti-Roman. These are false charges, but they were enough to set the crowd in the marketplace into an uproar. Upon hearing all these things, Luke says that the crowd joined in an inn in attacking them, and that the magistrates, without holding any real sort of trial, just simply tore their garments off and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had beaten Paul and Silas bloody, they put them in the local prison, intending to, know, to, intending to do who knows what in the morning. So it's a bleak picture, right? Paul and Silas had done something good. They had brought light to a people living in darkness. God had worked in the heart of Lydia and others, and he had freed this slave girl from an unclean spirit. And for that good, Paul and Silas suffered greatly. They weren't just imprisoned. They were treated as the worst of criminals. They were taken into the deepest part of the prison where their feet were fastened in stocks. Uh, we look at this and we can recognize very clearly this is completely uncalled for. In fact, this is wrong. It is wrong on so many levels. Where, where was God in all of this, we might ask? How, how could he have allowed something like this to happen? Well, I'll tell you where God was. He was with them. He was with them in the suffering. More than that, God had a purpose and a plan for their suffering, even for their imprisonment, to set more people free. He was present with them, and he is present with us. When Jesus gave his church the Great Commission, he announced, I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. And he also said that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. That was not an empty promise. No, it is a promise that assures us of the heart of Christ for his people, even in times of suffering. 
The author of Hebrews assures us that we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our sufferings. He is able to sympathize with us because he himself has suffered as we have suffered in every way and even greater. Jesus does not represent us stoically before the Father, but as one who, is, who has taken our own human nature on himself, yet without sin, he intercedes for us. The author of Hebrews tells us how Jesus in the days of his flesh and during his ministry prayed and his prayers were heard. And although he was a son, yet he learned obedience through what he suffered so that being perfect and complete, he has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, it matters that Jesus suffered. It matters because he had the full human experience. It matters because the suffering of Christ had the effect of taking on the burden that was caused by our sin to free us from that. And he warned us, he warns his followers that the world would treat us the way that it treated him, with disdain and justice and wickedness. But in the midst of all that, he tells us, take heart, I have overcome the world. As Paul and Silas sat in the pitch black of this jail, that was on their mind. They didn't bemoan their decision to come to Philippi. They didn't blame God for their suffering. No, actually, they worshipped. And that's probably the most surprising thing about this whole passage. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners in the jail were listening to them. Let that just sink in a little bit. They, they, Paul and Silas had just been beaten to a bloody pulp because they were faithful to Christ. This, this, these are those moments when the devil likes to say, where's your king now? But Silas and Paul couldn't hear him. Their hearts were too full with the glory of Christ. Their mouths were too busy praising God for his goodness. Their hearts were too full of the comfort of the Holy Spirit to care about the pain of their swollen ankles and their broken bodies. And so while they sang in the darkness, the glory of Christ shone brightly. Those prisoners in the cells next to them were listening, as were the guards and the jailer. And most of all, the ear of God was extended to them. I've used this illustration before, but if you ever go to buy a diamond, you'll find that the, the jeweler will always take that diamond and put it on a black velvet backing. The reason is, is because they want you to see the beauty of the light being reflected through that diamond. It's against that black backdrop that the beauty of the light is most brilliant. And so it is in this moment that in this dark moment in Paul and Silas's life, the glory of Christ is shining brightly. So, Paul and Silas weren't in jail because God had a, had a lapse in, sovereign, in his sovereign rule. No, he had a purpose. And in this moment, they were able to rejoice because these are the times that really have the effect of shaping us and molding us to look like Christ. Christ suffered. He suffered despite the fact that he was innocent. He, he suffered despite the fact that he had done well and done good. He was despised and rejected by the very people he came to save. 
He suffered more than anyone has, taking our sin upon himself and bearing it to the cross, where he endured the just penalty that we deserved. And he did this all willingly for the joy that was set before him. No one took his life from him. He gave it freely so that he might also take it up again, thus securing our salvation. That's why Paul and Silas could sing and praise God, even with their ankles locked in these stocks. It's not because they enjoyed the suffering itself. It's because that they knew that no harm could ultimately come to them because Christ had suffered for them. He went to the tomb so that we could be raised to new life with him. They rejoiced because they're, they're suffer, in suffering, they were not suffering alone. They knew that God was going to work something amazing through this. And he did that, maybe more so than they even expected. Luke tells us that about that time, there was an earthquake that shook the prison to its foundation. It shook it so much that the gates and the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now that looks like freedom to me. I've been straight out that door. It looks just like what we saw with Peter. Peter was freed, right? But actually, God had a different purpose in this. In verse 27, Luke says that when the jailer in charge apparently woke up and saw the state of his prison, he assumed the worst. A man in his position was intent. He had to guard the prison with his life. And if even one of the prisoners had escaped, he was responsible for that. So in an attempt to save his, arm, his honor, we're told he drew his sword out and he was, he was about to commit suicide. Death had him. But then, whether it was by divine prompting or whether it was by hearing the sword come out of its scabbard, Luke says that Paul called out to him in a loud voice from the dungeon cell, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now, it might not surprise us that Silas and Paul stuck around, but the fact that all these other prisoners stuck around really is something of a divine intervention. Paul and Silas may have been the ones in prison, but they were not the ones who ultimately needed to be rescued. And we're told that calling for lights, the jailer, I'm sure shaking, rushed into the prison and trembling with fear, we're told, and he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, how did he know to ask a question like that? It had to be the hymns that they were singing. It had to be the prayers they were praying. He knew these men had something he didn't have. He, they had a salvation he needed. And so he asked. And what a turn of events. Now, now we can see God's purpose and plan in this. We don't always see God's purpose and plan in the darkness until later as we see it here. God had a plan to release this girl from an unclean spirit, and he had a plan to save this man from the darkness uh, of his own mindset and his own sin, and even from the very grip of death. Paul and Silas's suffering all had a purpose to show the surpassing greatness of the glory and the work of Christ. In their affliction, they were preaching the gospel, even through their suffering, showing the love of Christ to others, just as he had shown his love to them. It gets even better. Paul and Silas are quick to answer this poor man. In verse 31, they reply, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so this man believed. Not only that, he takes, we see he takes Paul and Silas into his house, 
And they speak the word of the Lord to him and to everyone there. And then he and his household believe it and are baptized. They, they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they obey the gospel. Paul and Silas go from being captives to being treated as honored guests. And it all happens because God is working in the midst of the situation. Through, through Paul and Silas' suffering, liberty comes to this man and his household, a freedom that was purchased at the cost of the blood of Christ. That, that is what the gospel is all about. It's about Christ overturning the power of Satan. It's about God working to save lost people. It's about God redeeming sinners and setting them free to the praise of the glory of his grace. God, God doesn't always send an earthquake to get someone's attention. But the fact is that if you're here and you're a Christian, then something just as radical has happened in your life as God did in the lives of this jailer and his family. This is what makes the gospel good. It's this account of God's amazing work of redemption. I don't believe in coincidences. I can't because God makes, the Bible makes me understand that there's not a single molecule in this universe that doesn't have a role in what he's doing. So if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, maybe you believe there's a God, maybe you don't know him, and maybe you don't have a real relationship with him, then you need this same message that this jailer needed here. You need to understand that you are accountable to God, whether you recognize that or not. You need to understand that your goodness isn't going to cut it against his holy standard. You need to understand that the only way for you to be saved is to trust in what Jesus has done for you. He has done what you and I could not. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has suffered in our place so that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. If you haven't trusted him today, if you haven't trusted him, then do that today. Finally, and this, this third point really is for those of you who have trusted in Christ. You see, Christ doesn't just save us. He also brings us into his employment. He brings us into his kingdom and he sends us out as, his, as, his sons and as sons and daughters of God. He calls us to join him in this work. And that's our third point this morning. Jesus doesn't just call us to believe in him. He also calls us to follow him. He calls us to freedom as his disciples. For Paul and Silas, that led them to a, a Philippian jail cell. But it also led them to a glory that is beyond all compare. What stands out about Paul and Silas is that they didn't view their lives or their comfort as their ultimate goal. Some people approach, we'll say, we'll say religion, but Christianity even, in that way. It's a way for them to try and make their life here and now better. Christianity is not about trying to use God to get at something else. It's about truly living by living in a relationship with Christ. For Paul and Silas, their greatest treasure was Jesus and his glory. That is the same heart that is shared by all who have trusted in Christ who are born again. Christ has this effect on us. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we see that specifically in Paul and Silas' life in the way they rejoice when they suffered. They may not have known how, but they knew Christ was going to be glorified in this. And so they praised God to the surprise of everyone, even in the midst of that suffering. 
This, this gospel is something worth living and dying for. It's trading something that is temporary, which we can't keep anyway, for something that is eternal. The next morning, after all this happened, they're still in the jail. And the magistrates decide, you know what, we're going to let Paul and Silas go. So they send the police to tell the jailer to let them go. And the jailer seems pretty happy about this. After all, now he's friends with these guys. And he's saying, yeah, all right, the magistrates, they said everything's good. You're free. Go in peace. But to his surprise, Paul and Silas are not willing to go. Paul says to him and to the police who have come to release them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens, they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and take them, take, let them come themselves and take us out. Now, this is pretty, this is what we come to expect from Paul. Paul's pretty fiery, right? Paul and Silas uh, have now, they've suffered publicly for doing good. They have suffered because of the slander of wicked men who were angry they could no longer take advantage of a young slave girl. And as they do that, there, there's no trial. This is just a gross miscarriage of justice. And now that the chaos has calmed down, the magistrates are trying to, they're trying to get out of this. They've changed their mind about this whole deal and they're hoping to just sweep this thing under the rug, just to be done with it. What they didn't know was that Paul and apparently Silas also, that they were Roman citizens. Now, Roman citizenship has certain rights and privileges that others didn't get to enjoy. If you treated a Roman citizen this way, you could get in severe trouble. So the mathematicians have done has gotten themselves in very hot water. And you can see that in their fear that comes on them when the police report these words to them. Now, at the time when they were being beaten, Paul and Silas apparently hadn't announced that they were citizens. Maybe in the chaos of the crowd, they couldn't be heard anyway. But now we see them using their rights to demand that the magistrate own up to their success. So why, why are they doing that? Well, the reason I think Paul does that is, is not because he's trying to defend his own reputation or Silas's. It's not because he's trying to get back at these magistrates. What I think he's doing here is making the magistrates own up to their mistake to show that they were in the wrong, to make sure that the name of Christ is honored. By extension, I think Paul is also affording some protection to the church in Philippi as well. It's likely that if he and Silas disappeared quietly from the scene, that would have affected the way that Lydia and the others who had believed the gospel were treated as well. So what we have here, I think, is Paul and Silas putting on an absolute clinic for us for considering how Christians should use our rights and our privileges. Paul isn't seeking personal vindication by demanding these magistrates come and let him and Silas out themselves. He is making sure that the public sees the holiness of Christ honored. He is making sure that the suffering that he and Silas had just endured for the gospel can't be easily forgotten or just dismissed. He and Silas were not ashamed of the gospel or of what they had suffered for the name of Christ. That was how they considered their lives. They were resolved to spend and be spent in this service so that others could enjoy this freedom and this life as well. That is why they make the magistrates come and let them out. How many of you ever heard the PJs? Anybody? You should know what the PJs are. The PJs, so they're the most elite rescue force in the world is the pararescue force of the U.S. Air Force, commonly known as the PJs. They are some of the most well-trained individuals in the military. 
because they are sent into places that no one else can go. They are the guys that the special forces call to come and get them out of bad positions. They live by the motto, these things we do that others might live. It takes that sort of mindset to do the things that they do. As Christians, Jesus has called us to live that way so that others may live. We see that embodied in the way that Paul and Silas live their lives, except the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. We don't walk according to the flesh. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are not seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can see the iron of Paul's words and the way he handled himself in the city of Philippi. His greatest love was Christ, and that love showed itself out in what he was willing to suffer in order to see others come to have the same freedom and the same life that he had received from his beloved Lord Jesus. So my question this morning is whether or not we are resolved to live like that. This is the way that Christ loved us. He did not love us from afar. He came to us. He joined us. He suffered for us, and he prevailed for us. This is the way Christ loved us, and this is how we have been called to love others. So brothers and sisters, let's answer that call. Don't get distracted by the trivial things that happen in this world. Don't let the setbacks that you see in your life, even to what you might see to the church, get in the way of your faithfulness, because Christ is in control and he is with us. He will guide us and direct us. And even in those dark moments, he has a purpose. (coughs) Let us answer this call, not just in those big moments, but in those everyday moments of dying to ourselves, loving others, even at our own expense, because in Christ we have received something far greater than anything he could ever call us to give up. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have considered how you showed and displayed your majesty and your glory and your heart for sinners in a special way. And yet, Lord, as we we read about the miraculous things that happened in the city of Philippi, we don't have to think very far uh, to, to think about how you have so miraculously loved us because the gospel that was preached there in Philippi is still true today. And Lord, we who have believed that, have experienced that, rea- that reality. We know that you are truly a loving Father because we have experienced that love in Christ. 
And Lord, my prayer this day is that you would use your people well, that you would use us effectively for your kingdom, that we would have a passion and a heart to see others come to know Christ as their king as well, that they would not need to fear judgment, but that they would be able to look forward to the day when you will receive all of your people to yourself and exalt Christ as king for all to see. And Lord, we pray this to his end, to this end, looking eagerly forward to the day of your return. And we pray that you would keep us faithful even now and that we would give of ourselves so that others would know the glory of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our song of response is the power of the cross. We want to sing about what Christ has done for us as we leave this morning. So if you would, please stand as we sing together.
the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Those who see my name written in the words, for through your King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace.